Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice, the host of Inside Personal Growth, and I want to thank all of my listeners. I do this every time because without you, there would be no Inside Personal Growth. And for nine plus years now, and over 550 interviews with authors on business and mastery and wellness and spirituality, we've been giving you some of the best of the best. And today, uh, joining me is Mo Glenner, G-L-E-N-N-E-R.com, and you can actually find Mo at that address. Um, that is his website, and we're going to be speaking with Mo today about a book called Plus Change, uh, Genesis of Innovation that he just wrote. Uh, good day to you, Mo. How you doing? Good, good. Glad and to be aboard. Well, glad to have you aboard, and where are you joining us from this morning? Uh, from the Windy City in Chicago. All right. Well, he's in Chicago, Illinois. Well, that's awesome. I'm going to let my listeners know just a tad bit about you, Mo. Mo is a highly acclaimed thought leader on personal and professional leadership, change management, innovation. He's the author of Plus Change, Genesis of Innovation, which just came out. It's a lid publishing uh, book. You can get that on Amazon and any of your bestsellers. He also is uh, the author of a book called Selfish Altruism, Managing and Executing Successful Change Initiatives, and has been on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and had many articles on creativity, leadership, and change management published in magazines such as Bloomberg, Business Week, The Huffington Post, Internet, Truck Stop, and In Business. Mo is also a, a frequent contributor to LinkedIn Plus. Well, Mo, you're a busy guy, and we thank you for taking a little time out of your day to talk to us. And, you know, you're also an avid pilot. Um, and I gleaned this not only from your website, but the introduction of the book. What basically have you learned about being a pilot that relates to innovation? Well, if you take a step back, innovation to me is just a fancy word for change. And change management and how we manage that change is the epitome of being at least a safe or conscientious pilot. Uh, despite all the pre-flight planning and extensive weather briefing that we do, uh, ultimately we fly the weather we find, not necessarily the weather we plan. And how we deal with that changing weather, weather being this fantastic dynamic uh, thing, is really how we would deal with change in general mm -hmm. uh, as far as detecting that there's a change and dealing with that change and then that constant feedback loop, okay, now that I've made this change, has it solved whatever issue it is that perpetuated the change? So that and other things, whether it be through the training, the, the constant training, uh, as a pilot we're always training, uh, there's fantastic symmetry. Lots of things that cross over that are uh, analogous and uh, make for excellent points uh, with what we're talking about change or innovation or we're talking about even ideation. Uh, there's lots of things that cross over and overlap between the two. Well, now you mentioned it's, it's everywhere. It's in your book. It's on your website. You speak about it in the video that I listen about. Ideation plus change equals innovation. And this is a little formula that you've come up with. And you, you also have stated that, you know, people get stuck. You mentioned that ideas are very much like a tree with multiple branches leading to higher numbers of branches, which is the growth of ideas. And you mentioned that 
the one thing that stands in the way of growth are these artificial barriers, and one of them you call the stupid barrier. What is it, and how would my listeners eliminate the stupid barrier? Well, that's a great question. We, at any point in time in our brains, have millions and millions of ideas, the spirit, some wonderful ideas about just about everything and anything that are bouncing around at any particular time. You know, think about, uh, you know, I might be dating myself, you know, when, when something would go into warp speed on TV and you'd see all these stars just flying by almost like straight lines, or if you're driving at night uh, and it's snowing, and it, you almost have that same effect in your headlights, well, that's what's happening in your brain at any particular time. We have something that none of us want to look stupid. None of us want to be shot down with ideas or whatever it is. So we have a subconscious filter that goes ahead and does its best to eliminate any idea that could potentially make us look stupid. So what's left is that those tried and true and the proven ideas and whatnot, and there's a time and a place for all of that. But at the same point, if everybody's doing the same thing, then there's no real progress. So what we have to do is to get past this, this barrier because while the barrier is also eliminating stupid ideas or what it perceives as a stupid ideas, it's also eliminating all those potentially great ideas. Uh, what may be impractical right now or what the filter might consider as stupid uh, could be tomorrow's kernel of the next great idea or next whatever it is that can help propel us forward. So to get past that, we kind of have to trick it a little bit. We have to kind of tell it that it's okay to spit out any idea. We have to give it the freedom and the safety to allow as many of these other ideas that might not have made it past that barrier through. Uh, and there are lots of different ways we can go ahead and do that. Uh, the one way that corporate America right now tries to use is something called brainstorming. And brainstorming can potentially work, provided that there's true safety. Uh, one thing that I've found in, through observation, through personal experience, and I, I've been in uh, a lot of different roles, uh, senior management roles, other roles, and a lot of different organizations, is that it's rare that in a brainstorming session that there's also not immediate judgment on those ideas. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening with an immediate judgment is that you've just been shot down. So now the person that just throws out that idea is unwilling really to go ahead and stick their neck out again. They don't want to be shot down again. Others that have observed this person being shot down are now not going to offer up ideas because they don't want to be shot down. And essentially it's only very few. It becomes an exercise of the dominant and the loud um, versus really getting input from everybody else. Uh, a better method is something called brain writing, which is the same idea as brainstorming, but instead of actually offering the ideas out loud, you're actually writing the ideas down. Mm. That way everyone has the ability and the safety to go ahead and put things out. And there's a time later, there's a proper time later to actually judge ideas as far as what we're going to do with them, whether they go in a parking lot for later consideration, whether it's something we consider now, a lot of different variables, but at least everybody has the opportunity and the safety to go ahead and offer up ideas. Well, that it, obviously you've explained that stupid barrier very well for the listeners, and I think it is an opportunity for people. To, you, you talk a lot about perspectives. You know, I've done a lot of work in this area myself. As a matter of fact, I saw a lot of correlations between the book and 
some of the consulting that I do as well. And I, and I always look at things, Mo, like intuition and insight. And uh, as you use the word in many times, ideation, but ideas and inspiration and incubation and ignition and innovation and implementation, all of these key words, but you've got these cool things uh, that you've come up with and you call them the nifty nine principles. Um, let's start with the first one, if we would, and that is releasing endorphins. In your estimation, um, how do we get these endorphins moving and getting people in the organization engaged? Well, I, I think that goes more to a point that I, I believe in general, we take ourselves way too seriously. Um, we attach way too much importance to things that don't necessarily require the altogether seriousness. Now, it's okay to treat our positions seriously and the responsibilities inherent with those positions, but not necessarily ourselves. So by not taking ourselves so seriously, we're actually able to look at things, not necessarily in a humorous way, but in a lighter fashion. And it's, there's science behind what happens when we laugh and when we're in a good mood and what that does with our brain and how that actually releases ideas or, you know, the, the technical term, the endorphins. Uh, and, and that's and that's really what's behind that first principle, which is if you release the endorphins, if we allow ourselves to be in a lighter frame of mind, uh, if we allow ourselves to actually laugh, you know, as kids, unencumbered by responsibility, you know, they're always laughing, they're always having a good time, mm -hmm. and they're always coming up, and they're always coming up with, with what we as adults think are crazy zany ideas. Mm -hmm. We actually need. We actually need those crazy, zany ideas if we're going to move forward. We don't necessarily have to take them the way they're initially offered, but at least it can be an inspiration for something else. Well, I would agree. And getting endorphins and the uh, dopamines and the things that we have that move in our system from a runner's high to ex people, a lot of people that exercise to those things do stimulate creativity, plus that downtime as well. So now you, you talk about in principle two is separating idea generation from idea evaluation. You mentioned in a book that this principle is one of the more difficult principles to execute on. Um, why do you believe this is so? What's going on there in this principle from idea generation to idea evaluation? Because I know our minds immediately go, oh, there's an idea. Well, well we're going to shoot it down. Well, I think what it really comes down to is, is we're really quick to judge. Right. We just are, and we're, we're judging all the time. Every moment that we're awake, we're judging, and we have to be judging because that's how we frame things and perspectives and patterns, and that's how we're able to make sense out of the world and what it is that we're seeing. Part of the problem, though, in the ideation phase is where we're trying to generate ideas is, again, if we're judging them right away, then it serves really two bad purposes. Number one, we're telling our brain it's not safe to go ahead and think of other ideas because, after all, we're going to be judging them right now and it's going to have to pass through that judgment phase. But we're also communicating to others that might not have quite hit that phase that it's also not safe for them to think of ideas because we're judging them right now. Now, I mean, I want, I want to make clear that there is you have to do idea judgment. Obviously, we can't consider and we can't move forward, whether personally or professionally, on every idea that we, we think of. Uh, a lot of these ideas are impractical, uh, immoral, unethical, possibly illegal. It doesn't really make any difference. We're, we're just looking for ideas and inspiration. Mm -hmm. 
We want to get as many of those ideas as possible, whether we can afford them, whether we can't afford them. It doesn't make any difference. Once we have all those ideas, or as many of them as we're going to get in that time frame, now we can actually go ahead and filter through and find a way to judge them and judge them fairly, judge them without bias, so that we can actually take the best few ideas and possibly move forward with them. Great advice, and I think that this is something that happens. I mean, you come up with an idea, and whether it's just you and or you're not in a think tank with a bunch of other people thinking of ideas, let's just say it's you. I'm talking to my listeners out there. You, um, you have a tendency to judge those right away, um, but you frequently come from an evaluation of that and a perspective um, to say, oh, that's a, that's a crazy idea. And I think the key is to trust your crazy ideas. And this goes to your next one, which is always test assumptions. You said to clarify between the absolute knowledge and assumed knowledge. What does that mean? You know, it, it's funny. It's funny that you mentioned that now here that we are in this uh, in this political cycle, although I'm not sure when we're not in a political cycle, for what passes for what we think we know. And the question is, is separating opinion, which is subjective, from fact, which is objective. So when we assume something, if it's not an actual fact, if we haven't proven it, then it's really more of an assumption. And it might ultimately be proven true, but we have to be able to test that assumption. We have to be able to find a way to say, okay, I believe X, Y, Z. It's almost the scientific method. We've got a hypothesis. We've got something that we think it is. Now we have to scientifically test it, and then we come up with our conclusion. We don't necessarily have to apply a lot of science, but at the same point, we have to find some way to answer the question, how do I know what I know? And once we're able to answer, how do I know what I know in a coherent and cohesive fashion, well, then, then it moves away from assumption and more toward objective. It's uh, it. You have to be objective, and like you said, I think you use the analogy of this political campaign currently that we're in, and and all the media's exposure. Um, to be objective, as you can see, kind of difficult um, because of what's going on. But in other words, the key is to get to the facts, and I think part of the issue there. I'm going back to your example here of this political structure, is that the media, uh, depending on which channel and whatever sways this data so much. So um, I think you have to have your own ability to think through the true facts. Now, one of the big ones here, and I think it's true, um, you know, when I look at all the psychology classes I got, I got a master's degree, was to avoid pattern thinking. Um, what are you going to recommend to people out there that have a new idea to break this ingrained pattern thinking, which we have been ingrained with since childhood. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do, Mo. Uh, it, it's not easy at all. And a lot of times patterns are very important to us. We, we rely on patterns and representations of those patterns to make decisions. Uh, there was um, uh, Dr. Jim Schrager was with the University of Chicago, who uh, School of Business. Uh, he talks a lot about representation and behavioral science in the corporate world. And he bring, he's a pilot himself, and he mentions that's how, in the heat of the moment, if something goes wrong, let's say for a pilot, 
that they're using representations of the problems to recognize patterns and then to be able to act quickly on them. So patterns are important, and it's, it's an absolute necessity of, of functional, of what we do from a functional side. But then you have a functional side and you have a creative side. On the creative side, we don't necessarily want to have a pattern while we're thinking of those thoughts. And, again, it's not very easy to break out of it. We've been uh, indoctrinated from the very beginning, from Sesame Street and, and whatnot, you know, which one of these doesn't belong. We're, we're talking about patterns in math. We're talking about uh, even in art projects. Uh, my wife is a, uh, is a uh, third-grade teacher, and there's that Thanksgiving project that I think uh, they do. I don't know whether they do it in third grade or another grade, but essentially what it is is everyone's supposed to make, out, make their little cutout turkey. Well, the turkeys are all cut out with the same shape using a pattern, an actual and this is a real pattern, and essentially every one of the turkeys looks exactly the same. You know, there might be a little bit of individualization here or there, but essentially it's the same thing. And it's telling us that we need to follow the pattern. We have to follow the pattern. But if everyone followed the same pattern, then no new recipes would ever be created. Nobody would be – we wouldn't be able to get beyond that very basic uh, set of knowledge that we initially have. We have to be able to expand beyond that. And that's really what that comes down to is, is by, by breaking out of it or by experimentation. That's really what it comes down to, being able to experiment. And, you know, that I talk about that a little more, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get to those in those other nifty nine, you know, whether it's going off the beaten path, you know, or it's actually going ahead and saying, you know what, I, I have a GPS in my car. I'm going to turn it off, and I'm just going to go down this road for a little while, and wherever I go is where I go. I know I have the safety of turning the GPS back on if I think I'm lost, but who knows what I'll discover by just going down that road that I've never gone down before. And I use that both uh, figuratively yeah. and, and actually. Well, you know, it's a good analogy, turning off the GPS, turning off the cell phone, get the connectivity. And I have a question for you about that because uh, some of the greatest business leaders that I've heard um, everybody from Bill Gates to, you can name it, um, uh, Warren Buffett, they always talk about intuition. Now, when you take off the GPS, you got to have intuition. Tell me how, to my listeners, you personally and the people you work with plug deeply into their intuition on, for idea uh, creation. Well, uh, one of the ways that, that we, we've done it, at least in the past, and uh, we try to do something a little bit different every year, is we'll go someplace. There'll be a, a company-sponsored hike. Now, it's not going to be anything particularly difficult, but it'll be someplace that none of us have ever been to before. We don't know necessarily where we're going to end up. We'll always have the safety of, you know, somebody will have a phone available, off but available, We'll always have the ability to get back whenever we're done, and it's just being able to say, hey, why don't we try this path? Hey, that path looks good. Maybe we should go over here. Maybe we should do this. Maybe we should do that. Sometimes we break up into four groups. Sometimes we don't. It, there, there's something about our brains and the way they work that we almost have an inner GPS that kind of guides us. Do we really need people, someone to tell us that, this color is right or this shape is right or whatnot. Well, if we're strictly in pattern and functional, yes, we do. We want that. But if we're trying to expand beyond that, then why can't 
this shape or why can't this road or why can't this path that I'm taking, why can't that lead me to something else? Mm-hmm. And once I get to the something else, why can't that do something else? So it's just a matter of providing the brain and providing us as individuals the opportunity to test that intuition and to see where it goes. And well, we've, got, we've, I mean, all, we've all got an inner guidance system. I think frequently we don't listen to it. You know, amazingly, you know, I can get in a car and I'm one of those people that if I've been someplace, I can drive back to that place again without a GPS on, right? My wife always says to me, well, how do you do that? And I said, for me now, this is, this is just me speaking. I, I look for uh, road signs that I've basically put in my brain from the last time I was there, not knowing that, that that's a way to look at it. But intuitively, once I see something, I know which direction to go. And it is something you can work on and you can make it better all the time. Because listening to that inside gut feeling, your perspective about something, that gut feeling tells you a lot. It tells you not to go this way and go that way. And I think it's a very important thing in, um, in idea creation, ideation, creation, innovation, all of that. Now, you talk about new perspectives. Number five, you state that gaining new perspective requires continuous cheating and ignoring our own bias inclination. What do you mean by that statement? Well, we're, we're particularly biased and we've been particularly trained. When I say bias, it's just a predisposed way of looking at things. And certainly a lot of people define bias differently from a, either a social or a political or uh, other perspective. But I, I look at it just more at its very basic. It's just a predisposition. We, we see something, we immediately categorize it as something. We immediately throw it in a bucket. Uh, you know, I'll, you'll, you'll see, um, you'll see a car, you'll see a person, you'll immediately make a judgment of sorts, you know, and that's your internal bias that's actually coming into play. And lots of times it's right. And sometimes it's wrong. And that's just our predisposition. If we're going to create new perspectives, then we have to somehow find a way to actually take in that information, write it down, record it, put it someplace and not make a judgment. And again, this goes back to, again, not judging uh, during the idea generation. Not the easiest thing to do, but something that's absolutely critically, uh, critical and necessary. Uh, you know, Head and Shoulders a long time ago came out with a commercial, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that? Because that first impression that we see of something, we're making an immediate judgment. Right. So, you know, that they're, they're, they were trying to sell dandruff shampoo. But it's, it's really true everywhere else also. You know, you always want to make, put your best foot forward because somebody is judging you right away. So, somebody is looking at you through their individual predisposition or bias and making a judgment call right then and there. Well, they usually uh, say right? they're judging you within the first minute of any kind of dialogue or conversation, you know. I can tell because, you know, it's interesting. I've done hundreds of these interviews. And you can get a certain feeling from people how well it's going to go, what's going to happen as a result of just less than a minute of conversation. Um, So it's really, really an amazing, intuitive thing that you come up with. Now, you also talk about minimizing negative thoughts. And there's anybody that hammered that more in my lifetime and people like Napoleon Hill and um, so on and so forth of all the books that I've read on personal growth. 
And you mentioned that ideas are good ideas or springboards for further discussion and thoughts and considerations. But tell our listeners, you know, how these, this negative thinking really affects their ability to um, birth a new idea or new project. And what are you going to tell them to um, eliminate or try and eliminate as many of those negative thoughts as possible? Well, the quick answer on that is that with, with negative thoughts, we're immediately on the defensive. When we're thinking uh, something isn't right or something, uh, I don't like this, there's a certain stress level. And again, I'm not a, a medical doctor, so I, I, I can't really speak with absolute certainty, but I am sure, reasonably sure anyways, that your stress level goes up as you start not liking certain things. Now, it might only be minimally. It's not, I'm not implying that there's a dangerous level, but I would bet that the blood pressure goes up a little bit. In high-stress situations, I know the science is there that the blood pressure goes up. Um, and when all that's happening is your body's on the defensive at this point. It, it's, it's circling the wagons. It's throwing up the drawbridge. It's, uh, it, it's battening down the hatches. Everything is going down, pick your cliche, but whichever way it is, what's happening is, is you're building a wall. You're building a wall around yourself to protect yourself. And especially, no matter what that negative thinking is, um, we're, we're building walls. And it's hard when you build a wall for anything to either come in or go out. Mm -hmm. uh, and at this point, and for ideation, we want things coming in. But right. we've already built a wall. We've built a wall around us. We've built a wall about the way we're thinking. It's very difficult, which is why with the either the release of the endorphins which again now we're in a lighter frame of mind we're thinking more positively about things we're we're laughing we're smiling we've taken down the wall we're saying please come in join us we're having fun that yeah well helps. you know it's interesting i wrote a course once called never mind the noise thriving in a world of ever-increasing complexity and one of the things i would do with corporate people and google does this all the time now but back when i was doing it it wasn't in vogue um i was having people meditate now what happens is these ideas come in the mind and they go out because what you don't want them to do in other words they're coming in really quickly we have thousands of ideas all the time that are constantly coming in but to get to this state of awareness uh to allow the like tuning in the signal i used to call just get out the noise and bring in the signal that's the key and i think what you're talking about here is an ability to tell our listeners or, or understand our listeners to know that anything you can do meditating walking in the park that's another one of yours get lost turn out the lights um these are the kind of things that assist you in this creative process. One of them is you talk about number seven is take risks. How would you advise to minimize our loss? Because there's a lot of people aren't risk tolerant at all, yet they have some ideas. What are you going to tell people who have this great idea and they're going, oh, no, I'm going to lose my shirt if I try and do that, or I can't get the money or, you know, whatever it is. What do you tell people? Well, I think it's always important to, to have some sort of, and again, it, how formal you're going to be with this is really going to depend on the circumstance, but there's always a risk-reward ratio with everything we do. And if we perceived and took into account every single risk for everything that we do, we'd probably never leave our bed. We'd mm -hmm. take the lights out and hide under the blanket. Of course, there's risks with that too. But so we have to, we're automatically every day in just our everyday life already assuming 
a certain amount of risk. So it comes down to a, a, a you know, what is tolerable. Um, right. And that's an, indi- that's an individual component. And in a corporate environment, that's, that becomes more of an organizational thing. One thing that I've dealt with with organizations that I try to help organizations with, you know, in building that culture of innovation is to be more risk tolerant, is to allow people to take some chance. I'm not necessarily talking about bet the farm chances. I don't believe in that. I believe more of an innovative fast failure. So quick experimentation. Right. Let's take some limited experiments. Let's, let's see what happens. If we fail, great. Maybe we've learned something. That means our next attempt will be even stronger because now we've learned what doesn't work. That help us get more toward what does work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I so, know you play. I know you play games with your people as well because of some of the things you do. I used to work with the great Larry Wilson from Wilson Learning Days, and he used to have a game with electronic board that people used to have to step on these mines, and the the clock would tick backwards from a million. They were losing money, and the teams that always won were the ones that were willing to take the risk to find out where those landmines were first. Because then they could navigate themselves through the other side. And I think there's a key lesson in all of this. The quicker you are to get this done, the less loss there is. Um, And I I just think it's a real analogy there. So the last two principles are get lost and outgo the lights. Um, And you've got nine principles. We're going to combine these two um, because I really think they go together. Um, one of them is getting lost, as you say, is important to the creative process and actually outgo the lights. Talk with us about those two, Mo, and how those two principles uh, would help our listeners be more creative, more innovative, and upstart their ideas. Well, what we're really trying to do is, is kind of lull that subconscious. We're trying to lull the stupid filter. We're trying to kind of put him in a frame of mind, if you will, and I say him, but it, in a, uh, in a frame of mind that it isn't actively thwarting the barbarians or, for that matter, the good ideas at the moat. We want it to be in a frame where it's allowing at least some of those ideas to get through. We talked a little bit about uh, getting lost, you know, turning off the GPS, so to speak, but mm-hmm. you, can get lost, you can get lost in music, you can get lost in a good meal, you can get lost in anything else like that. It's just allowing yourselves to get lost is is where the real challenge is we we so want to be in control of everything but sometimes it's okay to not be in control and so let the brain wander or to let go in a direction that you might not have intended uh that's really the principle behind get lost again that's what we're really trying to do outgo the lights uh you know i've always been a big fan of pat travers cover of that song and it, it there there's a science behind it again we're lulling everything to sleep it's funny i say it's we're lulling the brain is actually more active when we're in this lulled state than in a state when we're uh fully active alert yeah right when we're alert Uh, and being more active is going to mean more ideas it's going to be more brain action it's going to be more of all the things that we want for creativity leading up to ideas that then can go ahead and and help spur that innovation or change. Well, one of the things I can tell my listeners is that if you are out there and interested in learning more about ideation, change, and innovation, Mo Glenner would be your guy. Uh, Mo's got a great website. He's probably got 15 videos up there. I'm sure you can capture him up on YouTube. Where's the best place, Mo, 
for people to really connect with you, learn more about you, but more about your process? Um, what, do, what do you recommend to people? Well, a, a few different ways. And again, it depends on, I know a lot of people use different social media to, to communicate, to learn. Certainly my website, www.moglenner.com. Uh, I'm active on LinkedIn. Uh, again, just Mo Glenner, M-O-E, Glenner. On Twitter at, at Mo Glenner. Uh, I have a Facebook page, Speaker Mo Glenner. But those are Twitter and uh, LinkedIn are really where I spend a lot of time. Uh, I share quite a bit of content, uh, not only my own content, but other content that's directly relevant to better and effective communications, change management, uh, building the culture of innovation. That, those, are, those are really the areas that I focus on. But I especially like posting articles that I feel are contrary to my point of view because I think we learn the most sometimes from people or things that disagree with our, as I said, predisposition or bias. Mm-hmm. And I'm always, I'm always interested. I'm always interested in somebody, if I give a talk or if I'm talking with a, a company or an organization or a person and they say, you know, I disagree with you. Great. Tell me why. Well, he also speaks about, uh, for my listeners, Leadership Takeoff is another website uh, of Mo's as well. And when you go to his blog entry, you'll see quite a diversity of blogs as well uh, for Mo. So I would say first place for all of you is uh, go to moglenner.com, whether you go to leadershiptakeoff.com or moglenner, it takes you to the same place. Um, that's where you can connect. You can find this book on Amazon. It is Plus PLUS Change, Genesis of Innovation by Mo Glenner. Uh, Mo, it's been a pleasure having you on speaking with our listeners today uh, about innovation and change and really the principles behind how you actually make that happen uh, and how you get great results from it. It's been a true pleasure having you on. Thanks for uh, taking the time to inform my listeners. Thank you, Greg. It was a pleasure being around.